Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have been interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-w-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 30, with the title, Personal is Political, and How Silence Speaks. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Professor Laura Saran, OBE. Laura describes herself as a black woman, nurse, academic, and queen. When I asked Laura to describe her superpower, she said, it is my story of self and breaking silences and silos about inclusion. Hello, Laura. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello, Joanne. That was a wonderful introduction. And uh, yeah, it's been a while we've been waiting to speak, so I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I've got my decaf, so uh, I'm ready to go. Brilliant. Wow. Uh, yes, we have. We planned this months ago, didn't we? We did. We so, did, Laura, yes. tell me about personal is political and how silence speaks. What does that mean to you? Well, you, I don't know if you've heard the phrase personal is political before. It comes from a really well-known book, uh, The Women's Room. Now, I read that book when I was seven, believe it or not, for the first time. And I kind of remember stopping at that phrase and thinking, what does that mean? And I didn't really understand it. Um, and I reread the book when I was 17, so 10 years later. And those words just kind of, pow, kind of hit me. And what I realized was that what it really meant was that the things that happened to me, which up to that point, I just thought, oh, well, that's happened to you, Laura, or that might happen to someone you know, but it's just a thing that's happened. I've realized that those experiences, particularly around inclusion or around feeling left out or around not being given an equal chance, were actually what politics was about. Um, and I know people think about politics in terms of, you know, which party do you vote for, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, politics in a, in a kind of social sense is about distribution of resources. Who gets what? Who counts? Whose experience is promoted and whose experience is kind of maybe even vilified? So the politics of living and the politics of uh, living with diff ourselves is really what counts. So the, my personal experiences, our personal experiences are the political point. So the personal is political. That's what counts. So my experience, yours, and what happens to me is not just me. It is really a reflection of our world, I suppose, and, and where we live. Well, yeah, I'm just, as you're speaking, I'm just reflecting on this. Storytelling is so powerful, isn't it? Yes. And, and listening to people's lived experience, it creates that empathy bridge. It allows us to, I can never understand what it's like to be you. What I can do is take your, your story and try and relate it into language that I can understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I say to me, that is my superpower, as you mentioned at the beginning. It, and it's all our superpowers. 
is that we are the, we are 100% the experts on our own life. We don't need to, you know, we don't need other people. Other people can comment, they may influence, they may affect, but we are the expert. Because even when we all experience the same thing, we're all in the same situation, we all see and feel something different. And so that story, my story, the story within me is not only my super fat power, but it's knowledge that only I have. Um, and it's really, really important, I think, to hear stories of each other, to share stories. It's, it's, how, it's what makes us human, isn't it? It's how we learn. It's how we become the people we are through stories. I love that. We are our own expert. I love that. It's a great, great, great soundbite. And it's so true because when I, some of the training I do, I talk about the equation E plus R equals O. So E is an event, something occurs. Yes. The R is our reaction to that event and that leads to an outcome. But what we often forget is the plus is our perspective, our lived experience ourselves bringing into our our narrative or our view of that event which so different people see the same event leads a different reaction and therefore a different outcome and we often forget to understand someone's lived experience as to why they think react or perceive differently because we're so focused on the outcome not how we get there Yes. That's why stories are so important, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we see it every day. I mean, when we watch the news, you know, and they have eyewitness reports, the eyewitness reports are always slightly different, which kind of makes you think, well, how can that be? Because if everybody saw the same thing at the same time, how can the stories be slightly different? But of course, what just as you said, what we forget is that um, what you see depends on who's looking. Where you're standing. And where you're standing relative to that. And where you have stood in the past. Yeah, exactly. your history. Exactly. Your, your, your socialization, your upbringing, yeah. your, your, what's, what makes you happy? What makes you sad? Is it, is it influence on, on your reaction as well as not? Yeah. I mean, it's almost, you know, the, the wonder of the mind is, is fabulous. Um, and it's almost instantaneous that whatever we, as we speak, it's filtered even without us knowing, it's filtered through our experience. It's filtered through our expectation and it's filtered through how it feels to be in that moment. Hmm. So it's already, our interpretation of events is already immediately interpreted by ourselves. Hmm. And this is where we plays into unconscious bias. It plays into that whole perspective is also a type of bias isn't it because we it's our fast brain we just go straight into memory fill in gaps yes uh, make assumptions etc cetera, etc cetera. and this all comes from our perspective and our lived experience doesn't it it does it comes from our lived experience but also i think as as we are social beings our lived experience is also affected by the people around us and their reaction as well. So almost immediately we're using our own experience, but we're, we're also checking it out around. I mean, I don't know if, if you've ever been in, in a situation where an accident has happened and I don't mean something catastrophic. It can be something, even as a small child, it, it can be something easy as you know, something getting knocked over, you know, or broken. 
almost immediately where we've got the shock of looking at it. And then we look at each other. We're looking to see how other people are reacting. So we, we look for that kind of community of reaction as well, which, mm. which is really important. Kind of that group think sometimes that if you're not careful, isn't it? Yes. It's, I mean, I, I often, the other thing I'm very conscious of is when we live in our, in our tribe, our group, our socialized mm-hmm. circle, our echo chamber. Yes. We have this in, intense need to belong to this group. Yes. We want to feel part of something. And often our views are merged into the groups. Yes. So we find it very difficult to have an, our own individualistic opinion for fear of shunning or ostracization from the group. You know, I, I often talk about if you're a Man United supporter and a Liverpool supporter, you have, you almost imply that you have to have a rivalry and yes. you can't almost, you can't, you're not allowed to acknowledge something great about the opposition despite the fact that you may want to, but because your group, your tribe polices you back into this conformity box or you'll be kicked yes. out and, and into the wilderness. And I think we've got to be very careful sometimes that our, what we use for safety in our groups and our, 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 our family units, wherever that may be, can often reinforce some biases or perspectives that maybe we're not, we're a bit worried about breaking out of. Yeah, because I think part of it is that there's an issue of personal safety that people feel, and that comes along with feeling accepted. So I think often when we're in a group situation, and we certainly see this, don't we, in work, we see it with, with groups of people of all different ages, that we, we're, we're kind of trying to check out, am I accepted immediately? And if not, what do I need to do to make myself accepted or what needs to happen in order for me to be accepted. And that's part of the kind of, um, I suppose, unconscious way in which we, we, we measure our position within a group. We, we're kind of trying to, we're trying to position ourselves. We're trying to locate ourselves in a particular situation. And that happens, you know, at, at home as well as at work. Um, we look for clues that, that will help us to see whether we are accepted or will be accepted within this group. And that's where the belongingness, the inclusion, the bringing your whole self to the group, if you like, so that you know what you can bring, what you can't bring, what opinions are good opinions, what's out of kilter with the group. Yes. So all that social dynamic occurs, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and you know, I think that, I don't know about you, but certainly in my experience as, as, a, as a black woman sometimes in those groups is that something may not necessarily strike me uh, around race and ethnicity, let's say, particularly about a conversation. But because I'm aware of my position, I do feel a sense of responsibility to raise that issue. It may not be my issue personally, but I feel that if I'm not in the group, who if I'm the only one in the group, who else is going to raise that? that point or give that different opinion. Hmm. Um, and I don't know, as I say, sometimes it's quite difficult because people can often assume that because I raise something, it's my issue personally. And it isn't necessarily my issue personally, but it is an issue hmm. that may affect my tribe or my group. Hmm. I, I had this kind of debate yesterday on Facebook as it happens and I was trying to get across the difference between something that is offensive and that I wasn't offended. Yes. So I wasn't personally offended, 
but it was an offensive remark. Yes. And it wasn't about me, but it was about the perception of this topic that other people I know would find that conversation offensive, although I'm hardened to it and I don't find, I'm not offended by myself, but I know it's not a good conversation to have. And someone's almost calling me, you know, calling me out as a snowflake or a politically correct person and trying to whatever. And, and, and telling me I was offended. And I said, no, I'm not offended. I'm just pointing out that what you're talking about is potentially offensive to somebody. And that all I'm asking you to do is consider who may be listening or watching and that that's the impression you may give. Uh, and it was really hard to get across the difference between how I feel and, and what it's being perceived as. Yeah, I, I think that that's something that we, that's been around for a long time and it's quite difficult. Um, because I think when you occupy a, when you visibly occupy a minority position, okay, so it's not something you can avoid, you know, because people will know, you know, even if you say nothing, even if the conversation's not about that, you know, even if you're in Tesco doing your shopping or whatever, you know, it's, you know, you, it's with you all the time. It's not something you can choose to take off or put back on. When you're in that position um, and people there often assume, and I, I, I know I've had this, that people assume that every conversation that relates to the thing that you are visibly part of is actually your your battle. So, you know, an experience tells me that I also filter that. So I filter that as to whether or not to say something. And that's where the, the 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 challenge comes about being offended by something and 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 knowing something is offensive or has the potential to cause offence. Um, and it also happens, I think, with you know friends and and members of my family who are not member of the same visible minority as, as myself that. People have said to them when they've raised some, an issue, say about race and ethnicity, if they're not um, black or minority ethnic themselves, they'll say, well, why do you care? You know, it's almost like there, there is a we've, we, we reach a situation where who has the right or who has the right or the responsibility to raise an issue as being uh, to be offended. And actually, that is that's always a really tricky one, isn't it? I, I mean, it's often said that to be offended is a privilege. Most people don't have the privilege of, of being offended. They, they just are, if you like, yes. or choose whether to be offended or not. And you're right, so right about just being you sometimes. You feel this obligation to represent and be a role model for, for whatever your characteristic may be. And that can be quite exhausting. It is. Because it can you, be you feel that responsibility. Because like yeah. say, you can't – you can't choose not to be, but there's always a sense of responsibility as well. And I, and I say, I do, I do, it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope, um, that I think that I learned to walk because I, you know, by, um, by a whole range of, of situations, some due to my own direct effort, some due to being in the right place at the right time, some due to circumstance, some due to, to some good allyship by people who did not look like me. I have, I am in a position where I am in spaces where there are not many people like me or with my particular social background or experience, etc. So there is some responsibility when you're in those spaces to say the things that have to be said to have those disruptive conversations and those challenging conversations. Um, but it, but it is 
a responsibility that you carry and and learning to live with that is kind of part of the personal political balance as you're thinking there, I'm just thinking, I often say that I, I've kind of cheated because I'm professionally trans, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, whilst I don't always talk about that as my primary conversation, it's part of who I am. It's my, it's my, what I bring to the conversation is that lived experience. And I can't take it off. I don't hide it. I, but, so I, I own it. But it means I can, I have a privilege that because I'm professionally my personality, I don't have to hide any part of me because that's what people are expecting. And I, I have a lot of empathy for people who are a Java programmer, a, a, a an accountant, whatever, who have the same characteristic as myself or other people, and they just want to be a great accountant. They don't want to be professionally trans or black or whatever. They want to be an accountant. So I feel I kind of cheat sometimes because I'm allowed to be me because that's what I do. And I don't have to, I don't have the same battle as somebody who wants to be the accountant first. Um, but at weekends, I want to be able to take my professional hat off and just go back to being the Sainsbury shopper, you know, go back to my day job of being a, a human being. And that's where. I find sometimes my shield of armor is let down. I'm more vulnerable. I'm now back to the world of, of the accountant trying to be an accountant. I'm the Sainsbury shopper trying to be a Sainsbury shopper. And that's where I feel yeah. defenseless sometimes because I don't have my, 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 my professional armor around me. Professional armor. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I, I would actually, I mean, I think I would, I challenge that in a, in a way because I just think it's, a, it's a different, challenge it's a different challenge it's not it's not less what is different um and you know very much you know inclusion and diversity is around equal but different so recognizing the difference but seeing it as just a different way of being um and i know what you mean so for example when i go to when i go to the shops whatever um i mean you know i turn, i'm a black woman doing a shopping you know a middle-aged black woman doing her shopping you know and um i notice different things so for example when i was a lot younger um if i was walking down the road and there'd be a group of um young young working class men of whatever group you know black white whatever they're all crowded on the floor as a young woman walking past you know they'd have a look at you they you know they probably would they probably wouldn't step out of the way so that you'd have to work your way through so they can slow your path um and i would walk towards them thinking oh what's going to happen now okay as a 57 year old woman walking the same street I walk down the road and they all step off the pavement. Now, I don't know. Now, I know that's politeness, you know, they, but obviously they're looking at me and thinking this could be my mother or even possibly my grandmother. So I'm I'm no longer in their sphere of having to create a reaction. I'm just, uh, you know, are you all right? And they nod. And, you know, even though they might be, you know, being a bit boisterous with each other, they tend to walk and let me go past. And even if somebody in their group doesn't move, they'll say, move and move them along. So there's something about we are differently presented and challenged. But on the other hand, professionally, as you say, when I turn up and I'm doing a presentation or I'm doing a talk, they know what they're getting. So they're expecting a politically astute, politically aware black woman to talk about inclusion and diversity. And they they filter me differently. 
And I think mm. that's what it is. But your, your vulnerability, so my vulnerability, I feel more in the professional space if people are not expecting me to look like I am. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's if, the, if, if, if I'm going to a meeting and it's not about inclusion or diversity, it's about something else. People may have spoken to me on the phone. They hear my voice. I'm not necessarily what they're expecting to walk through the door. And I've actually had people say, oh, you weren't what we were expecting. I don't know if you've had that, but they, you think, are you actually saying that out loud? <laughs> Do you, can you hear yourself? I've heard, something, yes. I've heard something very similar because because the two sides of the work I do, some of it is around trans awareness, LGBTQ+, but a lot of the work I do is around more generic inclusion, belonging. I do mm-hmm. audits. I do yes. uh, focus groups, interviews, facilitated workshops, those sort of things. And I don't signpost anything about me other than Joanne Lockwood, inclusion and belonging specialist. So yes. I, I have, I mean, I've stood up on stage in front of 600 people and I know people are going to go, whoa, as soon as I start speaking, because my voice yes. is not congruent with my, with my visual image. And I know that's part of my reaction power, if you like. Yes. To throw that and land at the beginning and own the room and get people to look back and go, oh, that wasn't expected. Yes. But I've, I've run training sessions um, recently for a European network, and they, they do evaluation forms at the end. And, and I've, I've run, run this this, this event twice. And twice I've had a com- comment on the evaluation form saying, I'm really confused why Joanne's voice, it, it doesn't fit with how she looks. And I, people are actually <laughs> remarked about it. You think they weren't so worried about my content. They were just, they were just confused by my voice. It's like, yes. oh, well, <laughs> it's the way yeah. it is. Yes. Well, exactly. And that, and that's the thing. So I think that the point you're making about being challenged, I think we're, we're differently challenged to different spaces. I was speaking, mm. I remember, um, having a conversation with my partner and, you know, he, he's white, he's English, you know, Yorkshire born and bred, you know, all the rest of it. And for him, he, he notices, um, I'm his first black partner. So he, he notices now things that I don't notice. So he'll go, not so much now, we're years down the line, but he, at the beginning, he would say, well, people are looking at us. I'm going, yeah, they'll look. And for him, he couldn't understand why they're looking at us. You know, it's it, because he's not had that within his experience. Now he has that. Now he says, I just look at them straight back. But, you know, before he was slightly confused. And it just shows that um, sometimes we're with our friends and our colleagues, and this happens at work, it happens in different places where, you know, they're sometimes more likely to hear some of the negative comments than we are because people have some kind, most people have a filter which says, well, actually, I'm not going to directly address this with Joanne. I'm not directly going to talk about this with Laura because I really like, and because I might be on unsteady ground, but they might speak to our colleagues, our peers, our families, our partners, because unless they out themselves as being related to us or working with us, people don't know. And they're kind of thinking, often thinking, at what point do I say I'm offended? Or what point do I say my partner's black? Or what point do I say my partner's trans? Or what point do I say, you know, you know, my mother or my yeah. father or what at what point do I do I say because they haven't got that obvious um, if you like, safety net that will allow people to think twice before they say things to them and how do they cope with that and that's often something i get asked that's really interesting because i've got a good friend who shared with me about probably about a year ago that people keep coming up to him and saying 
asking questions about me. You know, how should I talk to Joe, this Joe, that Joe? And he just used to and say, why don't you ask Joe? Yes. <laughs> don't ask me. Um, I'm not Joe's agent, you know, kind of a chat with Joe. <laughs> and, uh, but sometimes I guess our friends often get put in the position where people go to them because they don't, people don't want to maybe offend us or they want to, uh, yeah, they don't want to show their anxiety to us. So, yeah, yeah it's quite interesting, well, isn't it? Well, I was going to say, sometimes, sometimes people are uh, with good intention. If it's not within their sphere of experience, either directly or indirectly, they really just don't want to get it wrong. It's, you know, that's, I think that is probably the, ma- the major driver. They don't know how, you know, how to do it. So they go to somebody who they assume or they see seems to do it okay. And so I think that's one of the good, one of the key things I would say around kind of inclusion and belonging work is that is recognizing that it, you know, it's not about focusing on the members of the minority group and fixing them or helping them. It's not just that. It's also more about the general population and kind of moving beyond just telling them the rules and regulations to giving people actual ways of living and working with the with inclusion issues every day the everyday issues what do i do what what words do i use is it okay for me to just ask you know how do i actually approach that and 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 as i say for them we often don't know what people's personal lives are like when we're at work and, and we see them for that split second in business or just between nine to five, Monday to Friday. So, you know, how do we help them so that they can be their whole selves? They don't have to hide the fact that their partner, family, sister, brother, best friend, whatever, belongs to uh, the, the very group that you are using offensive language about or where they feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know about you, but... I mean, I, I know when someone is has good intent, they're being curious, they're being respectful. And whilst in the back of my mind, I, I'm saying, well, here we go again, another another person asking this question. I also want to leave them with a great feeling about me, about people of my characteristic. So inevitably, I will always respond in a very positive way. Because yeah, I, I respect someone's honesty and curiosity and I don't want to just push them away and get angry with them. Absolutely. And I think that is the key thing. It, it's it's not what you say. It's the way in which you communicate something helps people to understand your intent. And when I was um, training as a nurse, and this is you know way back in the early 1980s, when I was training as a nurse, one of the things that um, – often struck me was um, patients and other um, colleagues that I worked with would ask me questions that I would think, well, surely everybody knows that. And I realized that they didn't know that because they'd never experienced it. They had lived in places where they never had a black next door neighbor or knew anybody in their family where that happened. So, um, what, but what I felt was I was their first experience of that or at least I was made them feel that they could ask the question. And I always said to patients, to all the students as I grew up and started obviously um, supporting students and learners to say, there's no shame in not knowing the answer. The only shame is not asking the question appropriately. 
you know, so you just ask the question. And if pe- people are more than happy, I mean, the whole thing about stories where we started, people love talking about themselves. You know, that's just, you know, they like to know that people are interested in them. And so that's why it's the and so the intent of why you're asking about them. And more importantly, waiting and listening to the answer is really, really yeah. important. Yeah, the active listening, the mirroring, the, the nodding, the repeating the words. Yeah, very yes. important. Yes. I mean, going back to what you, the, yeah, the phrase you said earlier, the soundbite, we are our own expert. Yes. So you don't need to ask somebody else about me. Ask me. I'm my expert. I'll exactly. know what makes me happy. I'll know what makes me sad. I know yes. what you can do to help me. Um, yes. I mean, we talk about this in when we talk about disability. People often say, well, how can we make sure we're accessible for this person? Well, ask them. Ask them. Don't don't guess. Ask them what do they need, yes. and they will they will answer you. Yes, absolutely. And I also think it's it's about using some of the tools that we're given as reference points, not as an instruction manual. So often, you know, we you know we all have, or within businesses, and certainly within learning and, and training, there may be lists or information given around different communities. You know, just for knowledge of understanding, certainly around race and religion or or belief systems or, or things like that. But they're not they're not a instruction manual. They're more like a reference menu. So, you know, if you know, for example, oh, I don't know, I know that in general, this community, this is something that may be an issue, or this is something that goes with this particular religion. That's a start of a conversation with the individual person to say, I've heard this. Is that true? What's your thoughts about that? Because we all live our identities. We all live our cultures. We live our positions differently. You know, and that's where we, you know, opening those conversations, recognizing that you're, as as you've just said, that we're already talking to the expert in the room. Even even our parents don't know us as well as we know ourselves. And so, you know, if you're going to ask, you know, you can ask, you could ask my parents about what happened when I was born, because obviously um, my memory of that is not quite as strong as it. But if you want to know what I Mm. think about something what language, what, I, what you want, I want you to call me, um, how I'd like you to approach me, what I'm happy to be engaged in, then you need to ask me and take the time to listen to my answer. Don't pretend to ask me. Don't do a survey and then have no, no you know, allow me to see nothing changes based on my, my responses. And that's not the same as doing what I say. That's actually being evidence in that you're that listening. That is so true. I mean, me. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, people claim about survey fatigue. It's not survey fatigue. It's lack of action fatigue. People get frustrated by being asked what they think and nothing ever coming of it. That's that's the struggle people have. Absolutely. I mean, we. I'm just going. No, carry on. Sorry. I was going to say absolutely. We see in um, research a lot of the research that was done in the kind of sixties and seventies around um, different communities. A lot of the anthropological—that's um, a long word for a Wednesday morning—anthropological um, um, studies. What they actually show is that people get tired. People, there's there's a, a someone much more famous than me who said people get tired of engaging in work which does them no good. Well, they don't understand the outcome. There's no, no. They don't see any change, any difference. No action follows the inquiry. 
an analogy I often use is the difference between blowing into a straw and blowing into a balloon. With a balloon, you blow the balloon, you can see and feel the balloon expand. You've got a reaction. Yes. With a straw, you're just giving and there's no feedback. Yes. It becomes tiring. It becomes exhausting and frustrating. Whereas the balloon, you've got a reward, haven't you? Yes. That's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is that is absolutely key to that. You know, you know, I, I remember from when I was a lot younger, when people used to say to me, Laura, what do you think about this? And I used to say to them, you know, if you, if you don't want the, my truthful opinion, don't ask me. Because I'm not going to give you the answer you just want to hear. And then also, if I've given you my story, given you my opinion, given you my thoughts, I've invested in this. So where's the return to, on my investment? How is that going to do me good? And I don't mean necessarily financially, individually. How am I going to feel that my contribution makes a difference? Can you answer what I call the so what question? So you're asking me what I think. So what difference is that going to make? Yeah, or what's your why? Why does yes. it matter that I have an opinion? What are you going to do with that? Exactly. Exactly, and that's often the mistake businesses make when they're implementing DNI policies or processes. That yes. So what is the why? Why are we doing this? What difference are we going to make? What's the outcome? Yes. Exactly, and what difference does it make here in this business? Not what difference does it just make to the world? I mean, you know, we're all have the altruistic. You know, we all do our little bit and it changes the world. Absolutely, but in a business sense. Why is this important and how is this important? And how will I know that this particular business has made those efforts? How will I know that what I've contributed within the organization I work in is valued? And I see the only way I know that is by seeing, they used to say the why, seeing the responses. But if everything's just the same, you know, where we, we just this week is, you know, one year since George Floyd. If everything is the same, so what? Hmm. Too often people are focused on these performative actions. This, it, or we've got to do the right thing. It's the hygiene, it's the compliance. Yes. Oh, we all know that to make something sustainable, it's got to have a business outcome. And, and beyond the, it's the right thing to do. Businesses Absolutely. are businesses, and we have to respect the fact that they, they want to see an outcome. Uh, they want to know why it's going to benefit their customers themselves, why it's going to make them more creative. Because we've seen the McKinsey reports, we've seen the stats, we all know about diverse, inclusive companies are more this and more that and more the other. Yes. Yet the facts don't change people, and we're not doing it. Because people don't understand the why and the outcomes that they're going to get from that return. And they don't join up their processes. They don't have their hiring teams aligned with the marketing team, aligned with the business objective and the operations objectives. Hirers go off and hire as quick as possible, whoever's available, without thinking about the the overall goal of the organization from a DNI perspective. Yes. The product design doesn't always consider all of the people. So, and we often think of DNI as this people function. Yes. It's, it's more than a people function. It's a, it's a business function, isn't it? It is. It's very much a whole systems approach is what they need. It, because otherwise people get stuck and also people are let down. And, you know, bad news travels fastest. So, you know, it's not enough just to appoint somebody from a diverse background into a role. 
if the system that you're putting them into hasn't been considered because then they just fail. And then that's another failure. And then that's also somebody else who has invested their time in themselves for you. But also business-wise, it also reflects badly. You know, it always reflects badly. Mm. Well, the theme we started with the storytelling and you shared the, a great way of, um, of getting to know somebody is ask. So I'm really, really curious. You know, I've, we spoke before we went live on the recording about some parts of your identity that you're really proud of as part of your background that's brought you where you are now. But I've, before I talk about that, I'm really fascinated about you're an occasional poet. So <laughs> yes, what kind of poetry are you writing and, and what's it about? Um, it, well, it, it's interesting. I've been writing poetry for years, actually, for, for a long time, but not just for myself. Poetry is my way of what I would call downloading my brain. I've got, you know, I'm one of these people whose brain always seems to be on the go. And, po- and um, sometimes I get stuck. You know, like you've got to kind of reboot your computer. Some, so poetry is the way in which I download some things that happen. And it, and it literally has just been the way of doing that. Um, but then um, in 2018, um, you'll remember it was the 70, 70th anniversary of the NHS. It was also the 70th anniversary of the Empire Windrush landing at Tilbury Docks. And I was chairing a conference. I was due to chair a conference um, for NHS workers around um you know, kind of celebrating the NHS and diversity of the NHS, et cetera. And we were looking for, we were all helping the organisation and we were looking for some poetry to be done as in, like as an interlude between the formal, because it was a bit of a celebration as well as kind of like information giving. And the the group that we're putting together didn't really have any much funds. They were, it was very charitably done. And they inquired to professional poets about writing a poem for the event um, and the cost was a bit too high. They couldn't really afford it. So I, I don't know what happened to me. I must have had a rush of blood um, to the head. So I said, well, I can write you something. I don't mind writing something for you. Um, so I actually wrote, it's the first time I wrote a poem specifically on demand rather than just doing the downloading. And I wrote a poem um, called You Called and We Came. And it was actually about the the Empire Windrush coming post-war um, to and the, the nurses and doctors and the people who came to help the British Empire after the war to rebuild um, and the experiences of racism and, you know, non-inclusion and unbelonging, as I call it, that occurred after that. And that was the first poem. And this poem just went stellar. People have used it over and over again for Black History Month for various things. I've performed it. It's become part of a play. It was a part of a ballet performance um, that was done by in the Northern Ballet. Um, and since then, people have asked me about writing poetry. Do you write poems? I've realised I've got lots, hundreds of poems. So I'm now considering, because people keep asking me, I'm considering whether to... Um, I'm considering writing. When I say considering, I've started doing it really. Um, a book based around not all my poetry, but the book is, I think, is going to be entitled Stories from My Mother's House. And I'm going to frame it around different parts of the home and the house. It's not because the poems are about a house, um, as somebody asked me. It's more that if we think about the rooms in our house, but like the rooms in yourself and different rooms have different kind of spirits, different 
meanings. You know, the kitchen, for me as a, as a black woman, the kitchen is the heart of the house. It's the family. It's belonging. It's social. So, and it's about belonging. You know, the, your bedroom is kind of your own sanctum. It's your space of inner reflection. It's your place of peace, of relaxation. So I've got different poems about different moods and different experiences. And I'm thinking of the, the chapters of the book will have a intro, if you like, about the rooms in my mother's house, and then the poetry will follow. So that's what I'm creating at the moment. So poetry is... I love it. I love it. ...is a sense of me. Yeah, it's, it is yeah. my inner story, the poem. I think, that's, I think that's really great. I mean, my wife dipped her toe into the water of writing a book, um, and she designed each of the chapters around a song that meant something oh, wow. to her at that particular phase of her life. Uh, it hasn't got published yet, but she's still working on it. But it's all, she started with the songs, which evoked yes. a feeling and put it back in that place of being that age in that situation. Yeah. And the song was kind of the trigger point for that moment in her life. And I thought that was a really good way of doing it as well. But I love the idea of the each room in the house has a kind of a meaning and, and sets the scene for the poet. Yes. Poetry I think, stuff, yeah, yeah I, for me, it's um, poetry has always been my inner, my myself story, the, the thing, stories I tell myself, if you know what I mean. And I think that for me, there's something about the timing of stories needing to be told. So, so the silence is it for me. The, the, I have a thing about silences. And this is where we get the kind of silence speaks is that our, our experiences, all the things we've talked about, the stories of self are our silent stories. Our experiences are silent until we choose to share them. And, and we are the safeguarders of ourselves. And, you know, we are the, our own main protector. And so we do filter and we choose which stories to tell. So, but there are times when, when something happens or you witness something or you experience something or your business is going through something where the silence becomes so pressured to speak that it starts to scream. You know, it reminds me of that painting of the screen. It's a silent scream. And the power that there is in those untold stories of ourselves is huge. And, the, and, and what, what I learned when I wrote the Windrush poem is that what came out was the untold stories of making that sacrifice, the untold stories of the generations. We heard we had the Windrush scandal. And what we heard was the untold stories of ordinary people giving of their best for a cause and the consequences of when their stories were not heard. And so that's the importance of like the importance of hearing silences and silence always speaks. It's never truly silent, but we don't always hear it. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Powerful. Very powerful. I, I completely relate to that. Yeah. It's often what is not said rather than what is said sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. When we sat in that room and we're all looking around at each other, when something happens, we go back to the, there's an accident and instant, everyone looks, the silence is deafening. Mm. But I also think silence is powerful to allow silence to just be 
and allowing everybody that time to think, to reflect, to pull their thoughts together. Because we live in a world where we want to keep filling this vacuum of science with noise. Absolutely. But to allow people that, that introspective time, that, that thought generating time, rather than just pushing people to have an opinion now. So yes. take your time, pause. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And, that, and I think we, we sometimes have to give people permission to take time because there is, we're in this fast world where everything has to be day before yesterday. And, you know, we're all, we're still, you know, living through COVID and we, we've all been through a period of time where the world's been a lot more silent. And, you know, COVID hasn't created the issues that we've seen, but it's allowed a space where we can hear what's already there. And I think that is often what many businesses are seeing now, certainly around inclusion and diversity. You know, the mm. things that have happened over the last year have actually made us stop and see the world we're already inhabiting, whether that's the business world, our social world, you know, the, the world of the TV, whatever happens. We, we are seeing what already exists or we're hearing those stories. This is a really, really great time to listen mm. to the stories that are already there in your space. I'm also, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the power of looking at photographs without a noise, without without any yeah. sound, just your yourself being absorbed using your sight sense and being really in tune with what the photograph is saying to you. Yes. Because often we, we watch telly and they, they put background music or there's someone talking over it, but to truly study that image and the power an impact that makes about the story it's telling and making, yes. writing your own story about the image, putting your exactly. own spin I, on what you see. Absolutely. One of the things that I often ask people when I, when I coach them is about giving them time in the coaching just to be silent. And I ask them the question, what's your silence telling you? And that's what we get from pictures too. What's the pic, not what is the picture of, but what's that picture saying to you? And that's usually your inner voice. That's your own story that's speaking to you. Yourself speak. It must be really powerful to, to have a group of people all narrating a picture yes. with their own lived experience and perspective and seeing different emotions coming out of that, that same, you know, again, event, reaction outcome that perspective on what they're seeing and that tells a lot about their lived experience and their own story doesn't it maybe their pain and if, and if you, maybe their happiness and Absolutely. And if you go back to historically, that's what we did, didn't we? We sat down and we, we, we told stories, you know, whether we were watching the fire, whether we sat, you know, before the, the world of fast forward and, and, you know, online and, you know, box set binging, box set <laughs> binging. We, we sat and we told stories. And in those stories, just like with books, as we do now, when someone tells you a story of herself, you actually hear your own story, how it relates or not, how it's different to that one, how, you know, something that you'd never perhaps considered before. And that comes out of their story. And you get much more of that from personal stories than you do from a manual giving you instruction. Because it doesn't evoke that human emotional connection and potential that we have 
in our stories. Mm. It's always much more interesting to hear a story about what happened than to read about it. Well, I'm going to ask you another story about yourself. So I know you're immensely proud to be a professor, to be awarded an OBE, and also appearing on the as the eighth most influential black person on a power list in 2018. So I know you're immensely proud of that. Tell me, tell me that story. Um, Well, I can't tell you how I ended up on the power list because I was nominated, you know, I was nominated kind of, um, what's the word, anonymously. So I never knew, you know, you just got this thing. And and the same, I suppose, with the OBE. And I think the the professorship was different because that is the culmination of years of work, of research work, of policy work, of advocacy work, of development work around um, health disparities, particularly. Um, and the OBE was a nomination, which I got was for services to nursing and health policy. I've worked on many health policies, both in the UK and um, overseas, which all have a, an element of focus on equal chance, as I called it. The first policy I worked on was um, one that was published way back in 2001, which was the first sexual health and HIV strategy um, for England. Um, and that was and the reason that these things are proud, because the, the OBE and the policy work has always been focused on diversity and inclusion in many senses and disparities. And I think about the people that I met on that way, on, along the way. And the OBE to me is a reflection of them who were many, many were, I mean, certainly working in the early and mid 80s around HIV and AIDS and um, well, it was AIDS, it was before HIV, working with communities who were vilified by nature of their sexuality, of just being themselves. Um, the, you know, the, the hundreds who died, the people who lost their jobs, the people who had their houses firebombed, all those things. And, and he, you know, here I am, you know, 20 years plus later. And that OBE is a reflection of their voices, and uh, my responsibility to ensure that their voices and their experiences were included in every line of that policy that pushed it where it needed to be pushed. And the professorship comes, is, if you like, the professional bit that comes along with that, the writing. Um, you know, this the book we talked about would be my first nonfiction book, but I've, I've written textbooks, journals, articles, etc., policy documents, all that kind of thing. And for me, this is for all those people who should have got an OBE, who should have been given recognition for the work that they did, private, voluntary, all that, um, you know, the, the Windrush generation, my parents, you know, the ancestors. That's why I'm proud of it, that, that it's not only my efforts. I'm not here. I didn't arrive here on virtue of my own efforts. But definitely for me, you know, the allies that I had along the way, those people who pushed me when I didn't want pushing, who, who prodded me when I needed prodding, but I didn't want to do it, and who actually just stood me up, brushed me down and kept me going. And that's why I'm proud of it. That's so, so true. I mean, I hear many people who have been awarded uh, an OBE or similar, that they all would tend to say, it's, it's not about me. It's about, I was just the, what, the visible person at this is everybody else it's the impact we've all had in changing people's lives yes and i just happened to be the one that, that got picked to be recognized yeah yes yeah. 
And I, I always look at the news on us and think about the impact um, that people have had on lives. And that's what the OBE and similar awards are, are about. It's, it's not about you as a person. It's about what you've, you, the impact you've had on others. Um, yes. and the impact on society for, in a positive way. So I think, I think that's it's amazing. And, and what it's for, absolutely what it's for. You know, I, you know, it was the first person, although I didn't know it at the time, the first person that I nursed, when I say nursed to death, I don't mean they nursed to die, but, you know, <laughs> who I nursed. <laughs> that's always true, I nursed death. The first person that I nursed who um, died as a result of complications associated with AIDS was in 1982. And the dignity of that man and what he taught me about the best and the worst of humanity will will stick with me. That was 1982. So, you know, when I went to the palace and I got that award and received it, you know, his was the, the face that I saw. And, you know, that's with me and no one knows his name, you know, obviously, but that's the person I saw. Hmm. That's again very powerful. Very powerful. Did you get to go to a garden party and uh, get your? No. Well, there isn't a garden, garden. party. You, I tell you what, you do. You get to go to Buckingham Palace, and it's really strange because you've only seen it if you've been up there by the gates. You walk through the arch, but I've never seen so much gold in my life. You know, obviously, we talk about. You know, I had to keep reminding myself that this wasn't kind of you know faux gold. This was the real thing. But the, um, it was um, Prince William who gave the OBE um, on the ceremony that I was at. And we, I remember walking through the halls and with a partner and my children, um, you know, because you, you get to bring four guests with you. Um, and I remember walking through the halls with them and thinking, good grief, you know, I was... I was born in a back to back to up to down terrace in the front room on the settee, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the not the most salubrious parts of, of Nottingham. And I'm thinking, how on earth am I walking through Buckingham Palace here and with, with all these people? And it, I, I think I was just thinking of the, the distance traveled. I mean, both my parents had died um, a, a while ago. In fact, today is, is my, would be my dad's birthday. Um, but um, I think about them and the struggles they had and coming to England at the time of the, you know, no, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish kind of thing. And, and I just thinking, how on earth am I now walking through these hallowed halls? But it was, it was a fabulous day. And I met some great people. Um, and the people getting the awards were from all walks of life. People who'd done really good work for charities and, and people who'd, you know, shown great bravery around supporting somebody else and, and so on and so forth. And um, and the most surprising thing for me was actually real. I didn't realise that the Gurkhas were, who were two of who were stood on the side of Prince William, were actually like the personal bodyguards of the royal family. I never knew that. Maybe I'm the last person to know that, but I never knew. But I learned so much. And I remember sitting in that room thinking, wow. Yeah, good bad. I've, I've been to Buckingham Palace once. So I got invited to a garden party back in 2009, 2010. It was the year where the heavens opened and it hailstoned. Oh, oh wow. And we were, I mean, <laughs> the Buckingham Palace garden party is in, a, is in a huge lawn. And there was probably, I don't know, two or 3,000 people out there. Yeah, and the heavens opened, and literally everybody rushed into the back of the palace. There's a couple of thousand people all huddled, dripping wet in their <laughs> in their 
their hats, their dresses, oh, their shoes, yeah. suits. Everyone was soaked to the skin. Literally, it was like an instant heavens open, poof, no escape. And it, yeah, it was probably the worst rain in London. In, in, a, in a decade or something, we were out in the garden. Oh, like, no, in the hats and all the nice dresses. Yeah, it was. Oh, dear. And all the hats were ruined, all the shoes were ruined. It was kind of, <laughs> yeah, the outfit you'd, you, 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 you planned and, and uh, were proud down, of. And yeah. suddenly it's just this soggy, soggy mess. Because <laughs> it, it was the middle of summer. It was, a, it was a June. I think it was a June day, but it hailstoned, really hailstoned and emptied. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, we it lucky. actually was wow. featured in the, in the, um, London Evening Standard on the front page. Really? Creamed wow. garden party rained off sort of thing and pictures of us all <laughs> running in. It was, yeah. So that was, that's my Buckingham Palace experience getting wet. <laughs> we had a sandwich. We got our cucumber sandwiches. I remember going, well, you, oh, well, that's good. But the key thing is, Joanne, did you use the toilets? I thought, I've got to use the toilets just to say that I've used the toilets at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Which I, I don't think so. we did actually. No, oh I think- no, definitely. If anyone ever goes to Buckingham, make sure you use the toilets. They're fabulous. But at least you can say I've been in there. <laughs> yeah, because we we parked on the mound because if you get invited to the garden party, you get a parking pass so you can park mm-hmm. nearby. And of course, that seems like a good idea until you try and leave. Yes. you can't get out because every all these hundreds of cars are there. That part of London is busy in the evening and it took us like two hours to get out of there and across london and we thought oh. we'd be better off getting a cab or, or walking to the tube station well that's what yeah, we did we got, and a cab and then we got a cab um because it was we weren't too far away we were um near Earl's court so we got a cab from there so yeah yeah <laughs> well i mean that's amazing i mean hearing your story you know you, hearing some of your background and what makes you proud, I guess is really fantastic. I've got one last question. You describe yourself as an, a queen, a, a academic and queen. Where, where's that identity come from? <laughs> well, an academic is, is more about my, my inquiring and inquisitive mind. And I am an academic. I'm um, someone who once asked me if I'm a real professor. Yes, I'm a real professor. Yes, I have a PhD and all the academic bits of paper that go with that. Um, but I think that's because, I seek evidence and it, it's not one kind of evidence. Sometimes the evidence, as I say, is from people's stories or their experience, but I seek evidence to help me make decisions. And I try and bring a critical mind and also being always open to changing my mind based on new evidence or new information. So that's the academic bit of me. The queen is a reflection of my culture, my cultural position. I have been blessed to reach my 57 years so far, touch wood. Um, and I've reached a point where that is part of my identity. You know, we, you know, as, as a black woman, as a queen, as a, as a head of a family uh, and the holder of the culture and the heart of a family and part of a community. Um, and that's how I see myself um, and that's how I hold myself and that's how I present myself. You know, young women are young queens and old women are queens. And we, um, you know, just as men are kings within that, but we, we have that sense of responsibility and leadership for our families. And that's, that's why I'm a queen. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm sure... For everyone who's listening, 
there's so much there to, to ponder and take inspiration from. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, people can um, contact me via my website. It's lauraserrant.com um, and also by email, um, laura at lauraserrant.com. So that's easy. I'm also on Twitter. Um, I go everywhere as my name, Laura Serrant. Um, I've Googled it a few times. I'm the only Laura Serrant. If you Google me, you'll get it anyway. Um, and I've also got um, a, a podcast, which is called Speaking for Ourselves, which is really about those untold stories. So there's lots of ways people can, and I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, but everywhere I am, I'm just there as me, as my name. So you should find me relatively easily. And Serrant is S-E-R-R-A-N-T. Yes. Brilliant. Okay. Well, that's been amazing. So big thank you for everyone who's listened and for tuning in. Uh, please do subscribe uh, to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I've got a number of more. Well, could they be more exciting? I don't think so, but I have a number of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll also be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, remember, if you'd like to be a guest, let me know. Uh, I welcome any feedback and suggestions and on how I can improve the show. So email me at joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. And thank you to my guest. Catch you next time. Bye.